You know, if you want to you have your voice on someone else's story, be respectful. You have to do it very respectfully. It's, uh, it's very easy to, to get burned. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Enrique Reginato was always artistically inclined, but he came to visual storytelling through, of all things, radio. After a series of false starts, Enrique found himself far from home and family at Vancouver Film School. The goal was simple, finish the program, return to Brazil, start a career. But the universe had other plans, and instead, Enrique found himself working and settling down in Vancouver. After years of working in studios, Enrique ventured out on his own in 2020 and launched Knox Visual Effects, a visual effects bureau with a focus on compositing. But being the boss sometimes means making mistakes. In our candid conversation, Enrique shares valuable tips on surviving contract work, the importance of networking and mentorship, and insights into launching a business. Here's a conversation with Enrique Reginato. Where did your passion for visual storytelling start? It was before high school. I was always into photography. And uh, when I was nine or 10, my dad gave me a film camera, one of those little Kodak cameras. Uh, so I started photographing and getting interested in like, just recording, documenting everything, you know, family parties, friends parties. And then when digital cameras came out, my mom actually got me one of those Canon EO, like the first Canon that could shoot power shot something. And uh, it did film little videos. So I think when I was in grade six or seven, me and my buddies would get together and just film little shorts at home, little weird stories that would come up with. And I think that's that really got my brain going on, um, on the storytelling sense. And then in high school, I, I went to uh, advertising um, like a technical school for advertising and marketing where I learned about broadcast and radio. And then that really, really got my, my attention to storytelling. So, so clearly when you went to the technical school, you already kind of made a decision in your mind that you sort of wanted to do something in that medium, right? I think Waldorf schools is what represents closest to the type of upbringing I had. So it was very art focused and very community focused. So that, that really helped me to get into music and visual arts and see the world this way. Uh, very, very few of my friends from that time in that school did like, like traditional careers. I think for my class, I remember one of my friends became a lawyer. Half are musicians. The other half are illustrators. And I think one girl became a vet. But she decided to move to the jungle and be a vet in like remote areas. So were your parents artistically inclined or did they just see something in you that they thought, okay, he's going to be an artist? Not at all. No, not at all. They will. No, they are. No, my dad was not into the art fields at all. My dad was a businessman, uh, worked with transportation, wood and logistics. Uh, My mom worked for the government, so no inkling there. But my mom always, always believed in this. There's one particular type of schooling education system 
So she put me in that school and that's what the school is about. My brother, for example, my brother went to the same school. He's a lawyer. <laughs> so it didn't stick. The, the artistic side didn't stick for everybody. Only for those that paid attention. <laughs> so you decide, you know, you're going to this uh, art college or, or this art school. Did you already have sort of an idea of what you wanted to do at that point? No, no, not necessarily. But I knew it had to do with images. I knew it had to do with photography. Uh, when I graduated from that school, and I, I started high school, that's when I started the advertising technical program was together with high school. So my dad thought that school that I went to as a kid where my mom put me into was not his choice. When I left, that school didn't offer a high school program. So he put me into a very traditional high school program that had a technical school attached to it. And they offered three programs, uh, tourism, IT, or computer science intro, and advertising and marketing. He said, you gotta go to this school it's very traditional. It's going to prepare you for, you know, college or whatever that meant. And you got to got to pick a technical program that's going to land you a job. And he was sure I was going to go into IT. And uh, I was upset. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to pick the one he doesn't want me to do, which is advertising and marketing. Because at the time, it was the whole like, oh, this is things for coke heads. You know, like that. those are the people that go into advertising. Potheads and coke heads and people that drink too much. <laughs> so what you, you were going to be an advertising giant that's uh, that's what i wanted i wanted to be in advertising i thought then i then i discovered a passion for storytelling through radio i actually wanted to work in radio broadcast when i was in high school so like being a like a a host or were you thinking about like doing advertising on the radio yeah i was thinking advertising and journalism so i i tried to get into journalism school uh that died and pass. When I was trying college again in Brazil, I'm from Brazil, right? In Brazil, it's very, it's a little different when you apply for a school. You got, you got to do a multidisciplinary test to get into any course. So you need to, you need to do a test on chemistry, physics, mathematics, uh, language. There's a bunch of disciplines that you need to pass. And I didn't pass in this one journalism school, but I passed into this film production school. I already knew that that was something that I was interested into from you know, writing my own little short films with my buddies in school and editing a little bit. I was learning movie, Windows Movie Maker, remember that? So during school, I already had a little bit of experience with Premiere and Final Cut, After Effects a little bit, because I was just trying to like tell stories and put graphics and stuff, use that as a language to communicate. Then when I landed in film production or film school, then I really, I really decided that, that that's what I wanted to do. What did your dad think when you decided to go to film school? He, was, he wasn't very happy, but he thought, at least the kids in college, he's off the streets, you know? <laughs> and then he got really upset when I dropped out. <laughs> I never even finished high school. So you never finished? I, I finished high school by means of a GED. I didn't pass, I didn't graduate high school. So you did, took a very untraditional route into this whole <laughs> film business. Yes, very interesting. So, so you get your GED, you get into film school, you don't finish. Why don't you finish? I was actually very or highly disencouraged by my professors. I, I remember during the third semester, we had to do a group project. It was a short movie, 15 minutes short that we needed to produce. And then within the group, everybody had a, you know, a role into the production. I was producing. It was a collaborative writing. So the, the whole group was nine of us. We wrote together, but 
I was producing, my buddy was directing, another friend was photographing, another friend was editing. And then uh, it turned out that I ended up editing, doing the color, helping photograph because it was my camera, my gear. I, I had that inkling already. I, I knew how to use the camera. I knew how to edit. So, you know, I was doing all of it. And uh, during the presentation of that, that was the final product of the semester. And that was the, the marking grade or the passing grade was this film. During the, in the middle of the film, during the presentation, one of my directing teachers, she stood up and she said, you're either going to be in film school your whole life or you're not going to be in film at all. And she didn't let me finish the presentation. So I was not very encouraged to do it, but I was getting freelance jobs as an editor, you know, editing um, little commercials or uh, marketing videos, company videos, birthday parties, weddings, stuff like that. So, you know, I had a foot on the door by all means. Oh, but I should, oh, actually, I should get back to this one funny story. While in high school, while trying to figure out which, which way to go, uh, if I wanted the radio broadcast, I started phoning advertising agencies and film production, local film productions in Sao Paulo to ask for an experience day. So I was offering myself for a day to shadow somebody in the company, fly on the wall. I was going to zip my mouth and just watch someone work for a day. And uh, it turned out my mom knew a guy that knew a woman that was married to a guy that knew somebody, etc. So they said, yeah, coming in for coming in for an experience day it was a an advertising production house. They did production and post-production for advertising. And when I got there on the day, the guy opened the door to me. It was a big, big house. He said, oh, you're the kid. They're here for um, you're here for the internship, right? Can you start on Monday? So I think I took someone's job, but I started, I started doing like After Effects work for them part-time while I was in high school. And then when I got in film school, I already had the job experience. So I started getting more jobs. And then on the third semester of, of college, my girlfriend at the time had mentioned to me that her cousin moved to Vancouver to attend film production at Vancouver Film School and how he got a really cool job at Warner Brothers. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll give that a shot. And I dropped out of college and I moved to Vancouver. You make it sound so easy, but it's not exactly easy to leave home, go somewhere where you don't really know anybody to go to school. Yeah. And that was the third time of me doing that already. Okay. So you had experience doing this already. Well, while, while I was in high school, I was very fortunate that during one of my summer breaks, one of my mom's very good friend who was from California she was moving back home to take care of her ill dad. And she invited me to come live with her during my summer break. So we hustled up some money, got a flight ticket, and she took care of me for two months. I had no expenses for two months, but I lived in California. So I learned English. I skateboarded. I took photos. I did skate videos. Um, went back home, finished high school. There was a little stint in between high school and college where I moved to Dublin, Ireland, to study web design. I was just trying out things, you know. Uh, it turned out when I got to Dublin, the, the program was canceled on my first day of class. So they just gave my money back and a, a temporary work visa. So I worked at a kitchen for a couple months, figure out, you know, I'm already out here, might as well just do something. So I was there for six months working in a kitchen. And I thought, you know what? I had the money back. I had a check in my, in my pocket with the amount of money I paid for the program. So I was trying to hustle up a little more money to go to a film production program in Ireland. But then I was like, you know what? Let me go back to Brazil. 
let me try journalism. I want to go back into radio, landed into film, and uh, here I am. Okay, so you come to Vancouver to take this class. Were you already registered when you when you came, or did you just sort of come and you know winged it? No, I I applied to Vancouver Film School, Van Arts Art Institute, and then Vancouver Film School had a you know very very good marketing program, so they reached out to me via phone, and I thought I was a very important person for somebody to call me from overseas. So they said that I was accepted in the school, and then I had a uh, I had two years to pay for the program. One year before I even came to Vancouver, and then the year while I was here in school. So we figured out some finances at home. We figured that if I had started paying a year before I came, I could actually afford it. And then I I financed the rest of it in a couple of years with the bank. So you start sort of planning. You you know you're going to be coming to Vancouver to go to school to study. Um, what program did you apply for? That you got into? I applied for the 3D animation and visual effects program. At the time, I was already working. I had worked on sets. I had worked with advertising. I had worked with short movies. I had worked with music videos. Edited a few music videos while being on set as well. Started filming make or behind the scenes. Uh, all of that before I even applied to Vancouver Film School while I was in college. I applied for the Vancouver Film School 3D Animation and Visual Effects program because I saw a lot of people using After Effects and Cinema 4D to do all this very cool animation and uh, little simulation, class simulation, explosion, fireworks, fire, smoke. And I was, I was sure I was going to end up being an effects artist. I didn't know, I didn't know what that was. I thought visual effects, that, that's what you do, you do all of it. Uh, and then I came here and I learned about specialized streams, compositing, animation, modeling, lighting. And I thought those were very good tools to tell a story. It was a year-long program, full-time or double-time, because we had classes from 9 in the morning to 11 p.m. at night for six months, and then six months of specialized classes at Vancouver Film School. So when you got to the specialized classes, at that point, do you kind of decide what you want to focus your attention on? Yeah, because I thought I wanted to do all of it. But I think I, I chose compositing because that allowed me to design the visuals of a story a little better. That was a better tool for me to tell a story rather than just modeling a character or a prop. Awesome. I am going to be helping to tell a story that way, but compositing really allowed me to build the final visuals and use elements from all the other streams to put the, put it, put the elements together to actually, you know, tell the story better. Once you were in school, did you have any sort of inkling as to whether you were going to stay in Vancouver or if you were going to go home? Or what was your sort of next step plan after you graduated from VFS? My plan was to graduate on the year program and then use that leverage to go back home and get better paying jobs or work with bigger production houses. But then throughout the program, I learned that I could apply for a work visa in Vancouver. So I did. I got my temporary work visa. It was a very hot market at the time. It was a bit of a boom. I think that was back in 2012, 2013. Uh, so there was a very good traction happening in town. A lot of Los Angeles companies opened up satellite branches up here. So I was fortunate enough that Costa Visual Effects hired me for, for a season and they extended me. And then that gave me the opportunity to apply for my residency 
And uh, that's how uh, I was staying in Vancouver for 10 plus years. You've worked a lot on episodic television. I think the beginning of your career was really focused on episodic. Was that a personal choice? Initially, it wasn't by choice. It was, you know, I got hired to do an episodic project. So I did that episodic project. And then I started hearing this, all these horror stories about people that went to feature film and how they worked this mad hours and they were just a cog on the wheel and they were just doing this one little job and there were a number on a seat. And I've always had interest in trying it, but I had all these other very appealing offers to work in episodic, uh, much more, a much faster pace, having the opportunity to wear more hats, having my work and my name be a little more, more than just a, a number. So I think I decided to stay within smaller companies because I recognized the value in uh, being someone bigger in a smaller team. So I've always avoided the the very large teams at very large companies. And I stayed within the smaller houses. And I mean, you you did move around to a couple of different places and worked at a different a number of different studios. And I'm curious about your experience with onboarding and if you have tips for individuals, because I mean, that it's very common for people to move around through various studios. What, what have you found over, you know, the course of your career are some of the sort of key things that people could keep in the back of their mind for, you know, making the onboarding system easier for themselves? Oh man, that's a good one. Cause each company, each company is very different. Regardless of the company or the job or the position, the, the department that you're going to be working with, I think a good mentality is that you're there to tell someone else's story. You're not, there's no, uh, there's, there shouldn't be an ego. Don't go in with an ego thinking that you are the artist that are going to solve someone's problem or tell your story. You're there to ex- execute a function, even, even at smaller scales, smaller teams, there's a job to be done. It's yeah, that's, it's, it's a difficult one because you, you, you're going in for a job and your job is to tell someone else's story and uh, they give you all the tools that you might need. So going with the mentality that you're there to, to learn how to use those tools to tell someone's story and progress from that too. You know, if you want to, if you want to have your voice on someone else's story, be respectful. You have to do it very respectfully. It's, uh, it's very easy to, to get burned trying to tell somebody uh, that you know better. Uh, even though if, if, even if you do, even if you know better, uh, there's ways to approach it that has to have to be very respectful. To, to the next person, to your boss, to, to your client, to your colleagues. Uh, and I've never seen anybody fail by being respectful to one another inside of a visual effects or animation studio. Some of it, it seems like it's very much um, about managing personalities and people, right? There's a, there, no, there's a very high percentage of animators, designers, visual effects artists, there's a very high percentage of us that are very shy, introverted. And uh, the, the, the other side that's not, I, I've seen, you know, I've seen disrespectful interactions just because one person doesn't, doesn't mingle as well as the rest. And uh, that, never goes, that never goes well because it's what she says about, it's about management, managing yourself too, right? Not, not just the bunch around you, but yourself. You say, we so clearly you have a little bit of introvertness as well how do you get over that how do you overcome that 
Because I, I speak with you and I think, you know, this is an outgoing guy who's not afraid to get out there. And you're clearly not afraid to jump in and try new things. But how do you work yourself up to that? How, how have you managed that on for yourself? I don't personally consider myself to be an introvert. I am I'm very much a guy that jumps out there and just try things out and talks to everybody. But I do I do have a little bit of a an introvert inside of me. A uh, way that I like to not manage that, but use that to my favor is to, and it took me a while, don't take me wrong, it took me a while to realize this, is to know when to be quiet, is to know when not to try to be the smartest guy in the room. You don't have to. You don't have to always be the smartest guy in the room or bark the loudest. It's, it's nice to just sit back and listen. Listening is a very good tool as an introvert, is a very good tool to get ahead is to know how to listen, but also know how to, you know, raise your hand. I think a lot of people that are not introvert, a lot of people that are extroverts, they don't raise their hand as much. They just want to talk and they thump other people on, in the process and trump other people in the process. But if you're, if you're an introvert, I think that learning to listen and when you want to say something, I know that there's all this little thing that holds you back. Like, oh, should I say this? Is this silly? Is this stupid to say this? Raise your hand. And uh, once you're given the opportunity to speak, just say what you think. It doesn't, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's silly. It doesn't matter if it's stupid. If you listened and you took the time to raise your hand, that is well enough time to think about what you want to say. And that's generally go, goes well. I've, I've seen very few introvert people take a step back, think about what they want to say, raise their hand, raise their hand and say it and be the wrong thing. But I've seen a lot of extroverted people just biting their tongues all the time. <laughs> um, when you were working, sort of, I want to say the studio system. So before we were going to get to the self-employment in a bit, but while you, when you were working in the studios, I'm, I'm curious if you had a favorite job that you did or a favorite project that you worked on. Uh, not necessarily a favorite job or a favorite like specific position that I filled when I was in studios, but when I worked at COSA, and that's what I, it goes back to wearing many hats. The project Gotham was one of my all-time favorites. That gave me the opportunity, like we were doing so much in compositing. A lot of times in projects, the compositors, they get the, the shit end of the stick because they're at the very end of the production line. So when things fail, they pile up and they land on the lap of a compositor. During the production of Gotham at COSA, and we, I think we were the only vendor on the show we kind of decided that we were going to always meet halfway in every department. So going in with that mentality, giving us the opportunity to work directly with environments, map painting, CG and effects, knowing that we're going to have to complement things in uh, or complement things in compositing, that opened up a creative hole in the department that everybody wanted to fill in. Everybody wanted to do the coolest thing. So we're all trying very hard and pushing things very far. Uh, that created a very collaborative and creative process in the studio. I, I think that's my favorite show because it also gave me the opportunity to be nominated for an Emmy. And that was super cool. So thanks, Kosa, guys. That was, that was awesome. That was back in 2015. So what, you know, clearly you have a, um, you've, up until this point, you, you were working, you had great success, nominated for Emmy, your work is being recognized, you know, you know, the worth of, the, of your work. 
what prompted you to want to open your own studio? So that goes, you know, I worked in all these other studios and I see how things are working. My head, I'm always like, hey, what, what do I want? Why don't I go back to a TV studio? Do I want to try and launch forward, take a leap of faith and work in mad, crazy, big productions? Which, don't get me wrong, I still want to. I see all these job postings now that I have my own studio. I'm like, ah, it would be so cool to work on that project, though. I want to do that. But I have to remember that I will be just a cog in the wheel. And, you know, it would be a great experience. I'll learn from it. But that that's all. It's, it's like, I'll rather take a trip. I'd travel somewhere. <laughs> um, but what prompted me to open my studio was that when the pandemic started, for 10 years, I was told I couldn't work from home because of security, NDA purposes, yada, yada, yada. There's all these protocols in place that you can't work from home because nobody can see if you're filming your screen. Well, guess what? If you're an artist working on a movie, you're not going to record your screen. You know you're setting yourself on fire. as a shot on the foot if you do that. But then during the pandemic, I saw this opportunity. I was, I was sent home. I was literally asked to work from home. What I've asked for 10 years and I was told no, I was now being asked to do. Go and work from home. Please just finish our film. Please just finish our project. We don't care. Film your screen, show the world, call your mom, it's fine. So working from home, I realized, you know what? I probably know somebody that can uh, find me some shots to do independently as a freelancer. So a friend of mine who had just just started producing client side. He asked me, hey, do you want to do some freelance shots? Do you want to do some shots at home? Shots that don't make sense to go to a large studio because we don't have the budget, but are very profitable for a single artist working from home. So I was like, you know what? I'll do that. I'll incorporate a name so I can just do all the business side of it. I'm still learning how to have a business, how to operate a business. But I was like, you know what? I heard the taxes are lower. So let me give this a shot. So this friend of mine helped me set it all up is kind of like a mentor to me. And I started doing shots as a freelancer using a company, my company name. And then one thing led to another and a couple shots became a sequence. And then my friend heard that I was freelancing and asked me to supervise her entire film, like an indie film, because I had on-set experience. So she invited me to be on the on-set soup. I met a post-production supervisor on set who recommended me to a couple commercial guys. And then one thing led to another very organically. Uh, I freaked out in the beginning because I didn't know what I was doing. I picked up way too much work. You know, at the time, my brother kept telling me, just say yes, pick up all the work and then figure out how to do it. And then, uh, you know, four in the morning, I'm full of stomach ache on the floor in my living room, shaking my head in a fetal position. Like, oh my God, am I going to finish this? Am I going to do this? My girlfriend's like holding me by my head. You got to get through this. Just hire somebody. And then I started hiring people. <laughs> now I have an office in downtown Vancouver. Do you think you ever would have taken the leap to start your own company if the pandemic hadn't happened? I thought a lot about that. And the answer is no, I would have not done it. No, I was on a very good path as, a, as, a, as an employee. I was compositing for, for, for a company and then I started doing lead work. Then a pro like... It's all about being the right place in the right time, obviously. Uh, and you never know if you're going to be, but if you don't move around, you're never going to be in the right place in the right time. So move around, uh, make waves, make people know that you, you, you are uneasy. Just keep, keep fiddling with things. So they, they said, hey, Ricky, do you want to supervise this project? It's a film. Do you want to supervise it? You've been leading, you're doing a good job. Do you want to supervise? And I said no three times. 
until they said, oh, there's going to be a raise with it, Ricky. Like, okay, let me do this for one project, see how it goes. Um, finally, all my past supervisors, they never made overtime. They never got overtime pay. I don't know if it's something about upper management contracts, but my previous supervisor didn't get overtime pay. For this job, when they offer, offer me this, the, the supervision position with the raise, I immediately assumed that's my pay. I work as many hours as it takes to get a project done. I don't clock overtime. Well, guess what? By the end of the project, I said, Ricky, why, why did you never bill me for your overtime? So I had like, damn, so many hours of overtime unpaid. Never, got, I never saw that money. The things they don't tell you. I'm curious if the way that you approach work has changed since you've started your company. Dramatically. Uh, over the last two years of owning this company, I, I clearly, and every day I see that to my, in myself, that I'm distancing a little bit from the nitty-gritty of the actual ex execution of a shot from the perspective of a compositor. Obviously, that was my career. And I'm distancing myself a little more from that and diving a whole lot more into the storytelling, which is amazing. I can finally finally help tell a story on a macro level. When you're a compositor working at a company, you are telling a story, but on a very micro level, you have one shot. So uh, uh, a compositor while working in a, in, a, in a large company in a movie on a span of six to eight months, might produce 45 seconds of a movie or of a, or, or of a project. Uh, so that's very micro. You, you're like just a little part. Now that I'm taking a step back, looking at the bigger picture, dealing more with the clients and helping being on set, participating on script reads, making suggestions on how to film, planning the shoots, supervising the entire crew and supervising an entire sequence, that gives the opportunity to see things from you know, a bird's eye view, a little more of a macro level, which is what I wanted to do when I was in high school, tell a story. So now I'm finally, finally, using all of my tools and skills that I've acquired over the last 15 years to actually help tell a story through my tools, which is visual effects and computer images. But that, that, that's how I've changed. That's how I've, my approach to my work changed. My work hasn't changed. My job has, not my work. My work's still the same, to tell someone else's story. Did you ever imagine that you would be at this point? No, I never imagined that I would be at this point of being a company owner, of uh, I, I wanted to supervise. I've always wanted to supervise, and I want to do a little bit of consulting as well. A, a lot of it has to do with the fact that sometimes I'm very arrogant within myself, and I think that I know better. And I see people doing things that are not the way I would have done it. Not necessarily wrong, but not how I would have done it. And I always want to be like, ah, but can I can I just say something? Can I can I help you do it better? I've learned to raise my hand take a step back and listen before I, you know, bite my tongue. So I've always wanted to supervise and consult because I wanted my, my opinion to be valued in that sense. I want somebody to ask me, hey, how do I do this? You know how to do this. How do I do this in my movie? So to me, that's the consulting, that's the producer or supervisor that I wanted to be. And hey, I got my own company. So I call myself whatever I want now. I am a supervisor, producer, consultant. Is it, you mentioned that 
you know, you, when you started your business, you didn't really know what you were doing on the business side of things. Like clearly, you know how to do the work. Clearly, you know how to work with people. You certainly know how to network, but you know, the business mindset is a little bit different. Was it sort of learning by mistake? Did you have a lot of input from you, like your mentor? What was that process like for you? And do you feel that you were now at a place where, you know, you feel comfortable with the running of the business? In the beginning, it was a lot of uh, learning with my own mistakes. I still learn with my own mistakes. Every project, it's every project is a new challenge to me financially when it comes to the business of it. But there were times where you know I charged the client. I was like, "Oh my God, this is so much money! I'm charging this guy," and then he accepts my 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 quote or my bid, and I'm like, "This is insane! He's gonna pay me this much money." Then I realized that I got I got all these bills that I have to pay, all these people that I gotta pay. It's it's it was a mess in the beginning. So the first thing I did was to ask this mentor friend of mine, "What do I do? How do I make sure that I'm never in a bad spot?" or I want to make sure that it's as smooth as possible. So he gave me two tips. He said, hire a lawyer, hire an accountant. Those should be your first two hires, Ricky. So did you call your brother? Oh, no. He was in law school at the time, which is funny because he was he wanted to go into financial law. So he would have been the perfect guy to work with me. No, I hired, uh, I hired I had a personal accountant that also did business. He still works with me. And then he, my, my friend, my mentor friend introduced me to a lawyer and a financial, uh, what is it called? financial advisor who really helped me set up the business contracts uh bank accounts credit cards bookkeeping no nobody held my hand and said this is how you do it but they gave me all the resources all the good youtube channels books uh journals magazines to read and to answer the last bit of your question no i'm still not comfortable doing this i won't be for the next 10 years as a creative who is also now a business owner, so you have to have you have to keep your creative mind like creative and, and and open to you know that process. But you also now have this other mindset, which is you know the business mindset that you're always having to ha- keep in mind as well, because you you're not just now looking after yourself. You also have employees that you that that you're you're always are always also part of the equation. How do you balance those two things? Because they 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 generally work like two separate parts of your brain. I think the hardest part or the hardest leap is to learn to trust. When I hire people, there's always a little bit of a trial period. If anybody passes this trial period with me, I'm very comfortable just trusting their skills. And I make sure that I try to learn what they're good at, their weaknesses and strengths. So I make sure that we can assign tasks and shots to them that we know we're setting them up for success. This is something that was done to me. You know, this, this mentor friend of mine, he was actually my boss in a couple of studios. He was my supervisor and had a studio. So he made sure that whatever I was doing, whatever was assigned to me was to set me up for success or tasks that they knew I could accomplish uh, with 90% of comfort, 10% of pushing 10% of challenge, 10% of next boundaries. To me, the biggest part, the biggest challenge in separating those two uh, mindsets is from a creative standpoint, make sure you can empower your artist to do what you need them to do from a business side. And then from a business side is to trust that you've done a good job by empowering them, that you can let go 
that you can just take a step back and watch them do the job that you should have been doing. So it's, it's a bit of a, can we say bad words? It's a bit of a mind fuck. <laughs> but as soon as you learn to trust, I think it's, it's, it's an easier gap to fill. And learning to trust is not something that comes generally naturally to leaders. How do you work on building that level of trust? Therapy. <laughs> <laughs> My therapist told me in the very beginning when I started doing therapy for various reasons, the hardest part about trusting was to understand where the mistrust comes from. Why do you not trust? What stops you from trusting? A lot of the times for leaders, and I spoke to a lot of, a lot of other you know, great company owners and leaders, people in leadership positions, management, that the lack of trust in somebody comes from the place of thinking that you know how to do it better than everybody else and that nobody can do it like you would. You know that saying, if you want something done right, do it yourself? That's crap. If you want, to do, if you want something done right, Make sure that you communicate your expectations and how it should be done. Empower the next person to do it how you would have done it. Explain how you want it. And then listen when they, don't want, when they suggest something else. Because guess what? They might know an even better way. And then you can probably combine both ways and come up with something even better than what you expected. So once you learn, once you try for the first time and you see that you were not always right, that your thought process was not the best possible, but the collaborative, the, the hive mentality was the best approach, it becomes easier to trust. It becomes easier to, to take a step back and see yourself from a bird's eye view and be like, look, you see, you worked that one time. Just do it again. Just try it again. And then you get comfortable at it. We're talking a lot about the balance between you know work and business, but what about the balance between work and personal life? I mean, as an quote unquote cog in the wheel, generally speaking, you're probably going to go home at whatever time. And then that's it. Like you do the job, you go home, the job is done. You don't have to think about it anymore. But as somebody that, you know, owns a business and even for creatives that don't own businesses, but maybe work for themselves, or they have like these creative projects on the side, how do you balance that work-life balance? Is there a balance? There is, there is, there is a balance. Uh, there's there's two types of balance. The one, you know, the creative side when you're, you're an artist, a cog in a wheel, and the balance when you're a business owner. From the perspective of being an employee, being an artist, working for somebody else, I think the balance, a lot of it comes from imposing that you're you're gonna have your own balance, that you, you're there to do a job. You get paid for the hours that you work, and then, you know, you go home. As a highly creative individual, sometimes you go home and you're still thinking about work, even though you shouldn't. One thing that I've always done in the beginning of my career, and now I make sure that I do with my girlfriend at home, is that we take some time to talk about our day, to meditate, not meditate, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? To process our day out loud. It takes 30 minutes, 40 minutes a day to do it. It really helps to decompress, really does. Really gets, like, you get it off your chest, you process what you've done, you realize your mistakes, you realize your, your successes throughout the day, and then your mind winds down a little bit. Because if you don't talk it out loud, if you don't think about it, it's funny because if you, if you don't stop to think about it, you keep thinking all the time. But once you really rationalize all of it, it helps wind, wind down your brain. As a business owner, it's the same process, but there's another level. And I'm of the opinion that if you chose to run a business of something that was your passion, 
that is your life. If you want balance, make sure that you are okay with going home late and still thinking a little bit about work. Because guess what? You're working for yourself now. So it, it's okay. As long as you understand that sometimes, hey, date night, movie night, let's have dinner. You know, you have to put boundaries as well. In the beginning, I was working 12, 14 hour days. It's only been two years, but now there are days I, I work five, six hours. As long as I get my day done, I put a list of my to-do list for the day. I cross all those items and then uh, I see if I still want to work that day. A lot of the times, yeah, sure, eight hours is minimum. But some days I don't have to work that much. And that's okay. You know, you mentioned that it's okay to not have to work the eight hours. But I'm assuming that being able to give yourself that time also takes building up to, right? Because, I mean, there's always this thing in the back of your mind that, did I forget something? Should I be working this extra time? Yeah, there's 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 that. And through conversations with, with my cousin, who I... I adore him. He's a very smart guy. He's very smart because he, he's done so many wrong things in his life that now, you know, by experience, he knows how to do the right thing. So I asked him how he organized himself. You know, he's, he's a police officer who reads maybe three, four books a month. He can be in med school, but he chooses to study. He studies so much. So I asked him how he, how he does it, how he keeps his balance. And it was when I learned about to-do lists. Really, itemize everything. Today, I write items on my to-do list of emails I want to send, people that I need to get back to, to have lunch, to take a break. Those are my to-do lists. So every day I'm crossing 15 to 20 items out of a list. That gives you a very good feeling of accomplishment. To strike items out of a list, oh my God. If you do that in five hours... You don't feel like you need to work anymore. You can go for, you know, for a walk, for a drink, for whatever you want to do. You feel, you feel like you've done something with your day. Do you use a, like a pen and paper for your to-do list or you, do you do it digitally? I do it digitally. Yeah, I, li I like to have across all my devices. So if I'm a work computer, I have a to-do list. On my way home, I can still try strike more items or write down more items for when I get home. And then when I'm at home, I can strike the same items that I wrote during the day in case I'm working late that day. But yeah, I know people that like the, the scheduler, you know, the old leather cover scheduler with a pen built in. Palm pilots were the, the thing. Exactly. <laughs> Remember palm tops? Yeah, totally, totally. I still have like post-its on my best friend and I still have a couple of notebooks laying around on my desk all the time. But for my to-do list, I like to spread them around uh, digitally across my devices. That's how I like it. How did you, when did you start incorporating to-do lists into your sort of day-to-day -day work? When I realized that I was missing appointments, not getting back to emails, losing clients. <laughs> That's when I was like, oh my God, I need to get my stuff together. And then, uh, then I spoke to my cousin and he's like, to-do lists, man, to-do lists, write everything down. You started your business during the pandemic. So, you know, for the majority of the time, you've grown your business over the course of the pandemic. And now things are starting to open up a little bit. As someone that has a business in, that works, you know, in visual effects, how do you see the changes that have occurred sort of over the last two and a half years changing the way you work going forward now that things are kind of going back to pre-pandemic times? 
is it pre-pandemic times or is this a new way of working? You know, there's a word that goes around that kind of summarizes to me the future of work in, uh, in this industry, which is hybrid. There's the pre-pandemic approach to things and then there's the pandemic approach to things. Number one, being able to work from home. When I was working from home, I loved it. I could cook my own lunch. I could do laundry. I didn't have to waste my, half my Saturday on laundry. I could do it during the week on a Wednesday. <laughs> Who'd have thought? And then um, pandemic came and changed all these things. We couldn't go to work. We couldn't film in the same way. So that created different challenges for us in visual effects. That, you know, uh, internet and global infrastructure, cloud services, a lot of those things grew during the pandemic. I don't think that there is an overage of the infrastructure, infrastructure that was created during the pandemic because now it carved the path that we have a choice. We can, uh, we can work in this hybrid way of uh, working from home, working more independently, new approach to the way we film things. You know, a lot of the times you need to spend a lot of money to get two actors on the same day, on the same spot. And then now, you know, somebody breaks their leg. Oh, actually, that's the saying. But somebody breaks their arm, all right. They can't film or they got COVID, they can't film. Hey, we got we got techniques in place to, to accomplish the same job, to, to stitch it all together and still have a movie at the end of the season. There's been obviously conversations about well, what, what is the future or what it holds, you know, when you see Star Wars or Mandalorian and they're doing all this crazy, awesome magic with stagecraft and virtual productions being booming. Virtual production is nothing new, but now it's, it became a tool of the pandemic and it becomes a tool of future storytelling. I like that a lot of different companies or different industries like gaming and film, which always overlapped slightly are now converging to me those are results of the future uh having volume being able to do volume captures in volume stages heck i, I just saw a demo of a markerless mocap capture beautiful all you need is two phones and you can do a mocap of you uh so th there's all these new things ai gosh ai art everybody's heard about it by now even my grandpa asked me about it not not kidding my grandpa's 98 and he's like oh i heard about computers making images by themselves true you know i think people spent way too much home time at home during the pandemic because there's nothing else to do so they created amazing tools amazing things for us to use in our future careers and future work and future projects you've brought up two other points that i think are really interesting the first being how working from home changed how you as an artist worked because the work was still getting done. Mentally, it almost sounds like you were in a better place because now you could, you had more time to do things that you wanted to do, but the work was still being finished and delivered as it needed to be. Yes. Yeah. I don't think that productivity, I don't think productivity fell. As a matter of fact, I think it rose up during the pandemic for our industry you know, there was, I read a bunch of articles about working from home, the pros and cons and the benefits. Obviously, if you work a factory job, you have to be at the factory operating machinery. You know, if you're, if you're a driver, you have to drive. You can't work from home and be a, maybe very soon, maybe very soon. I think that in our creative industry, nobody, nobody lands a job in a visual effects or animation studio because they were applying for jobs. You know, we're, we're not... We're not 
filling shelves on Walmart. Not, I'm not saying that that's a bad job, but that that's a job that requires less education and training to become a visual effects artist or an animator. There's so much training involved that for you to, to end up in one of those facilities, you wanted to be there. You wanted to do that job. So I think giving those people the opportunity to do that job from their houses, a lot of us already, you know, introverted people, hey, much better. I don't have to deal with the craziness of 300 people next to me talking and talking and talking and I can't handle that. Beautiful. I don't have to get out of my pajamas. I can cuddle with my cat, my dog, my parrot. I don't know. But being able to work from home and balance uh, the eight hour journey wasn't made for a person to do eight hours of work and still get home and clean the house, cook, do. But now you can. Because guess what? If you're working with computers, you can work from home. Uh, I think that opens up a lot of mental health issues that we had in the past. They're now being talked about. They're now finally being balanced in a way. People have a little more freedom. And finally, we're talking about mental health and all that stuff. Like there was a long period of time where people didn't talk about it. And if you go to therapy, it's a hush-hush thing. You don't say it. But now I can talk about it. It's wonderful. The other thing that you mentioned was how, you know, these tools that sort of came more to the forefront throughout the pandemic have are, are sort of changing how we work and, and into the future. You were in the creative field and you are a storyteller as well as part of that job. What do you see as, you know, the biggest challenges coming down the pike as someone that works with both the creative side and the sort of the tech side where you're, you're going to, you have to get those jobs done. I think from the perspective of, you know, working in the industry, having those tools is incredible. They are here to make your life easier. So learn them and take advantage of them. Uh, they're not here to take our job. There's been a lot of discussion about, oh, they're going to take our jobs. No, they're, they're not. They're not. If we learn how to use them for our own benefit, we're just going to do our jobs better and faster. That, to me, that's, that's the ultimate goal and result of uh, artificial intelligence, uh, machine, learn, machine learning tools. Of course, the, you know, the con side of it or the cons is that now our clients know those tools are out there. <laughs> they know that we can do our jobs faster and better. So they will push us. But hey, that's what film is about, right? That's what uh, storytelling is about. The art pushes science and the science pushes art. It's a good way to keep evolving. You know, 50 years ago, we had to hire somebody that could draw with a pencil. Guess what? It's a very important skill to have. But that evolved. You know, it evolved with a digitalizing table, and then uh, now intelligent tools, artificial intelligence tools that you can use that even if you don't have the skill to draw or conceptualize a whole idea, because that's, that's what we do. We, we conceptualize ideas and we, we make ideas come through. Even if you don't know how to draw, you can do it now. You can show an example of what your mind, what you're picturing in your mind without having the skill to actually draw on a piece of paper. And of course, I'm just contextualizing with uh, tools like Midjourney, Dali, all, all these diffusion uh, methods and algorithms. But this goes far beyond, far beyond the way we can literally translate those things into computer hardware. Being able to read more frames per second makes your job faster. Uh, read higher resolutions. You can now uh, see 8K instead of 4K, which we couldn't do in you know, 10 years ago. 
So I think the, the key is to just embrace all of it. It's technology. We, we are evolving. And uh, we don't have to hold dear to traditional methods of the Puritans. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't have to be idealists with the traditionalism and the things. There, there is beauty to it. There is the, there's definitely beauty in uh, craftsmanship to the traditional way of doing things. But we need to move forward. You've already mentioned some of the things that excite you, like, you know, um, virtual production and all of that. For you, what is the most exciting? What's the thing that the little bit of technology that's coming down the pike that or that's currently being used that's really exciting you? I think right now, you know, I'm definitely carried by the hype. I think uh, I think it's, it's uh, AI art generation prompt to, uh, prompt to image or text to image art. I cannot draw, but I've always wondered, you know, when you're trying to tell somebody, oh, I had this idea and uh, I think it would be really cool if it, there were mountains back here and somebody has to imagine what you're saying and it's always an interpretation, but now I can, now I can communicate my ideas a little better. So I'm very excited about that, using those tools to quickly conceptualize what I have in mind and also to exercise my creativity by typing all these crazy words that come to my mind. My mind goes really fast sometimes. And then uh, putting all those words and see like, okay, is this what I want? Is this how I thought of this? And sometimes it's a very pleasant surprise. So I'm, I'm excited to see the evolution of that and how we can transform that into video. I'm very excited about mixing techniques, mixing me mediums, using maybe, maybe, maybe I use that to generate textures that I then project onto a little mocap of me that I shot with two phones because I don't need to have a studio mocap anymore. I don't have to wear a funky suit full of little ping pong balls. So I'm excited. Okay, so if I am to in short summarize my answer here is I'm excited about mixing the mediums together. Where do you go to learn about all of these new things that are emerging? But outside of you know whatever it is that you pick up from working in the industry. A lot of it comes from social media to me. Uh, I am not the most active person on social media. Like an old person, I use Facebook more than anything else. Bad. That's bad. But I think like anything, just like we medicate ourselves with drugs, you know, we take Tylenol. That's a drug. But we take it consciously of what we're doing. So like social media is the same, same approach for me. I make sure to insert myself into social groups in social medias that I know are not going to be degrading for my day-to-day. -day. As a matter of fact, tools to me like Instagram uh, wasn't going anywhere for me. I was just wasting my time. I wasn't focusing on other things, so I, I deleted off my phone. So I focused only on the things that were aggregating. I'm not sure if you use Reddit. I started using Reddit during, during the pandemic. Uh, it's, it's, it's an endless world. It's like playing an open like an open world game, but you play all the characters at once. You don't even know what's happening there. But as soon as you start filtering the communities you want to follow, the people you want to see, then I think uh, the creativity and the, the, the focus comes back. Obviously, wonderful conferences like Spark CG, you know, those really helped me. I owe a lot of my career to Spark. I can't lie about that. I was going to ask about you know, volunteering, because I mean, you started volunteering with Spark very early on and you volunteered through, you know, a, a big chunk of your career, basically right up until the pandemic, you were volunteering. What 
for you, what was the benefit of, you know, giving your precious time that you could be spending at home or with family or with friends to, to give back to the community? Why was that important to you? Well, initially, I started volunteering when I was still a student. I thought it was a very good way to network, especially when I learned I could actually get a job here because I had a work visa. So Spark really helped me network. And I actually got my first job because, you know, word of mouth, hey, Ricky was a volunteer on the floor at Spark. He was putting up banners and, you know, he knows how to take a step back and actually listen. <laughs> if he's applying there, you know, there, there, there you go. There's a recommendation. So I got my first job because I was recommended uh, from a Spark supervisor at the time, Barbara. So I kept volunteering because I was very grateful for having the opportunity to be here in Vancouver and, you know, be invited or accepted into the industry and, uh, you know, get my talents actually recognized. So I was grateful that I was surrounded by extremely talented artists. I never thought I was the best artist in the room ever. I was always like, my friends were so much better than me. And I just wanted them, I wanted to see them succeed because I was very, I was like, how, how can I get a job? And that person who is clearly much more qualified than I am, just can't find a job. And I realized, well, I was recommended because I'm here. The whole thing with the right place at the right time is if you're not somewhere at some time, you're never going to be in the right place at the right time. You're never, just never going to be. And the, my friends were not being. So by means of volunteering, I, I found, found a little good spot to give back, to help the people on board, new volunteers, work at the job fairs, hustle up with all the students and be like, hey, you got that table, you got that table, learn about other recruiters and, you know, be able to give back in that sense. That, that, was, that was great when I was volunteering. Kind of sounds like I stopped volunteering. It's just that. Well, no, you're still volunteering just in different ways. <laughs> I changed, yeah, I changed my focus on how I volunteer. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this goes back to, I'm always interested in knowing what drives people to to give their time. I mean, part of it is, you know, wanting to give back, but there's clearly something that you're getting out of it as well, right? I mean, I know when I volunteer my time, I feel like it's a great feeling to to be able to say, or to just know that I am hopefully making somebody's life a little bit better in some way, shape or form, even if I don't see it directly. I'm curious, what is it that drives you to to still give your time? I think that's that's exactly is, is the is the feeling, the rewarding feeling of gratefulness for seeing a little spark in someone's eye, for knowing that somehow I've helped somebody, you know, either be better through the means of feedback. Even giving feedback is, is a way of volunteering to me, uh, but specifically with Spark was networking with new people, helping those students that were being on board at Spark or coming to job fairs or coming to the events, you know, who weren't as fortunate as I was to understand that the, the, the importance of networking, the importance of raising your hand before you speak and listening uh, is, to, is to be able to, in a way, use my volunteering time to mentor. It happened a lot that I was volunteering and I was just a, a student volunteer, and then I start becoming a supervising volunteer uh, when I was supervising the career fairs here in Vancouver with Spark, and then you know recruiting new volunteers, and then passing the torch and seeing them grow and succeed. 
to me, that was incredible. That was, that, that was, that was my drive to, is the renewal process of, you know, I go out as a volunteer, but whoever came after me is being brought up and is being uh, setting up for success. And I don't want to be presumptuous, but this sounds like kind of your, your approach to business. It is, it is. It's a, it's, it's a mindset. It's a mindset that I take. And it's funny because when I first started hearing about mindset, it's all, it's all about mindset. Like what the heck is a mindset? But it's literally, it's literally something that you think that's how I'm going to do this is a workflow. My mindset of going to the kitchen. I know I'm going to get through this door and get through that door. When I get to the kitchen, I'm going to open the fridge and I'm going to look inside and I'm going to close the door because I don't know what I want there, but I know how to get there. Uh, it's just, it's, it's decision-making. Mindset is decision-making. I decided that this is how I'm going to think. So I decided that I was, you know, I was feeling like people were giving me the opportunity. They were listening to me. They were helping me with my career. So I decided that I was going to do the same, same thing for other people. So it's all about mindset. 15 years in an industry is a long time. And, you know, you've learned a lot over and had a lot of experiences over the course of your career. What would, if, if you could change anything, would you? I'm very happy where I'm at right now. And I think that if I were to change the slightest thing, you know, it wouldn't have the same effect, the same result. It's the butterfly effect. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to risk it. And if you had a tip for someone that's interested in going into visual effects, what would you say would be the, the key thing that they should keep in mind? The visual effects and or animation, everything falls into the one umbrella of visual storytelling. Using a tool or pushing buttons on the software is just as tedious as working at a warehouse accounting for inventory. Uh, so if you want to do this, you have to have a passion for telling a story. This job is just a tool. The better you do, the better the final picture is going to be. But a bad story is still a bad story, right? Um, it can be a very pretty bad story, but that's going to be up to you. A lot of the times I see, and I, I, I'm in Discord channels and communities on LinkedIn, Facebook, and uh Reddit about visual effects and animation. I see a lot of people focusing way too hard on software, way too hard on how to achieve certain effect. Of course, it's important to learn how to do the techniques, but the whole reason why we're doing this effect, the whole reason why we're using that software is because it's the best tool to tell whatever story we're telling. So I think as far as our mentality or mindset goes when it comes to entering the industry, is remembering you're telling someone else's story the job is just a mean to do it we've talked a lot about storytelling and being creative would you ever want to direct tell your own stories i never thought about it i know for a fact that if i had to sit down and write a story i couldn't i'm the type of guy that i'm very good at catching words in the air catching words in the wind and transforming those words in ideas I, I'm very good at, you know, the big back stuff, but it's funny that you asked that question. In the last two years since I started the company, I've had a couple of people on set telling me that I should try directing, that I have, I'm very good at like telling 
putting things together on how to tell a story. I never thought about it before, but you're, you're probably the fourth or fifth person. Maybe I should consider that. Maybe I should listen to, you know, to the world, to the universe, or to Marina from Spark. <laughs> yeah, well, why not? You know, uh, there's, oh man, there's, you know, there's a, a director, business owner, and some, an artist and writer that I admire a lot. I actually just missed the opportunity of meeting him. Oh my God, I was so upset at myself. He walked right by me and I was like, why am I the same? I'm at the same party as him. I should go say hi. And my introvertness just kicked in. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, my fanboy. Uh, but he is a director, he's a filmmaker, he's a writer, he's an artist. I admire him. And he didn't start directing until recently. And it's Tim Miller. And you know, maybe when I get to his age, I'll get to direct my own, my own awesome animated series. You know, something to, to dream of. Ask the Sandman for it. That was our conversation with Enrique Reginato. You can find out more about Enrique and his company, Knox Visual Effects, at their website, knoxvfx.com. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.